This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism, a study in nature and development of spiritual consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. First half of part two, chapter three, the purification of the self. Here, then, stands the newly awakened self, aware for the first time of reality, responding to that reality by deep movements of love and of awe. She sees herself, however, not merely to be thrust into a new world, but set at the beginning of a new road. Activity is now to be her watchword, pilgrimage the business of her life. That a quest there is, and an end, is the single secret spoken. Under one symbol or another, the need of that long, slow process of transcendence, of character-building, whereby she is to attain freedom, become capable of living upon high levels of reality, is present in her consciousness. Those in whom this growth is not set going are no mystics, in the exact sense in which that word here is used, however great their temporary illumination may have been. What must be the first step of the self upon this road to perfect union with the Absolute? Clearly a getting rid of all those elements of normal experience which are not in harmony with reality, of illusion, evil, imperfection of every kind. By false desires and false thoughts, man has built up for himself a false universe. As a mollusk, by the deliberate and persistent absorption of lime and rejection of all else, can build up for itself a hard shell, which shuts it from the external world, and only represents in a distorted and unrecognizable form the ocean from which it was obtained. This hard and wholly unnutritious shell, this one-sided secretion of the surface consciousness, makes, as it were, a little cave of illusion for each separate soul. A literal and deliberate getting out of the cave must be, for every mystic, as it was for Plato's prisoners, the first step in the individual hunt for reality. In the plain language of old-fashioned theology, man's sin is stamped upon man's universe. We see a sham world because we live in a sham life. We do not know ourselves, hence do not know the true character of our senses and instincts, hence attribute wrong values to their suggestions and declarations concerning our relation to the external world. That world, which we have distorted by identifying it with our own self-regarding arrangements of its elements, has got to reassume for us the character of reality, of God. In the purified sight of the great mystics, it did reassume this character. Their shells were opened wide, they knew the tides of the eternal sea. This lucid apprehension of the true is what we mean when we speak of the illumination which results from a faithful acceptance of the trials of the purgative way. That which we call the natural self as it exists in the natural world, the old Adam of St. Paul, is wholly incapable of supersensual adventure. All its activities are grouped about a centre of consciousness whose correspondences are with the material world. In the moment of its awakening, it is abruptly made aware of this disability. It knows itself finite. It now aspires to the infinite. It is encased in the hard crust of individuality. It aspires to union with a larger self. It is fettered. It longs for freedom. 
Its every sense is attuned to illusion. It craves for harmony with the absolute truth. God is the only reality, says Patmore, and we are real only as far as we are in his order and he is in us. Whatever form, then, the mystical adventure may take it, must begin with a change in the attitude of the subject, a change which will introduce it into the order of reality, and enable it to set up permanent relations with an object which is not normally part of its universe. Therefore, though the end of mysticism is not adequately defined as goodness, it entails the acquirement of goodness. The virtues are the ornaments of the spiritual marriage, because that marriage is union with the good no less than with the beautiful and the true. Primarily, then, the self must be purged of all that stands between it and goodness, putting on the character of reality instead of the character of illusion or sin. It longs ardently to do this from the first moment in which it sees itself in the all-revealing radiance of the uncreated light. When love openeth the inner eyes of the soul for to see this truth, says Hilton, with other circumstances that come withal, then beginneth the soul forsooth to be vastly meek. For then by the sight of God it feeleth and seeth itself as it is, and then doth the soul forsake the beholding and leaning to itself. So, with Dante, the first terrace of the Mount of Purgatory is devoted to the cleansing of pride and the production of humility, the inevitable, one might almost say mechanical, result of a vision, however fleeting, of reality, and an undistorted sight of the earth-bound self. All its life that self has been measuring its candlelight by other candles. Now, for the first time, it is out in the open air and sees the sun. This is the way, said the voice of God to St. Catherine of Siena in ecstasy. If thou wilt arrive at a perfect knowledge and enjoyment of me, the eternal truth, thou shouldst never go outside the knowledge of thyself. And by humbling thyself in the valley of humility, thou wilt know me and thyself, from which knowledge thou wilt draw all that is necessary. In self-knowledge, then, thou wilt humble thyself, seeing that in thyself thou dost not even exist." The first thing that the self observes when it turns back upon itself in that awful moment of lucidity, enters, as St. Catherine says, into the cell of self-knowledge, is the horrible contrast between its clouded contours and the pure sharp radiance of the real, between its muddled faulty life, its perverse self-centred drifting, and the clear onward sweep of that becoming in which it is immersed. It is then that the outlook of rapture and awe receives the countersign of repentance. The harbinger of that new self, which must be born, appears under the aspect of a desire, a passionate longing to escape from the suddenly perceived hatefulness of selfhood, and to conform to reality, the perfect which it has seen under its aspect of goodness, of beauty, or of love, to be worthy of it, in fact, to be real, this showing, says Gerlach Peterson, of that experience, is so vehement and so strong that the whole of the interior man, not only of his heart but of his body, is marvellously moved and shaken, and faint within itself, unable to endure it. And by this means, his interior aspect is made clear without any cloud, and conformable in its own measure to him whom he seeks." The lives of the mystics abound in instances of the vehemence of this showing, 
of the deep-seated sense of necessity which urges the newly awakened self to a life of discomfort and conflict, often to intense poverty and pain, as the only way of replacing false experience by true. Here the transcendental consciousness, exalted by a clear intuition of its goal, and not merely counting, but perceiving the world to be obviously well lost for such a prize, takes the reins. It forces on the unwilling surface mind a sharp vision of its own disabilities, its ugly and imperfect life, and the thirst for perfection which is closely bound up with the mystic temperament makes instant response. No more sins was the first cry of St. Catherine of Genoa in that crucial hour in which she saw by the light of love her own self-centred and distorted past. She entered forthwith upon the purgative way, in which for four years she suffered under a profound sense of imperfection, endured fasting, solitude, and mortification, and imposed upon herself the most repulsive duties in her efforts towards that self-conquest, which should make her conformable in her own measure, to the dictates of that pure love, which was the aspect of reality that she had seen. It is the inner conviction that this conformity, this transcendence of the unreal, is possible and indeed normal, which upholds the mystic during the terrible years of purgation, so that not only without heaviness, but with a joy unmeasured, he cast back all things that made him let. To the true lover of the absolute, purgation no less than illumination is a privilege, a dreadful joy. It is an earnest of increasing life. Let me suffer or die, said St. Teresa. A strange alternative in the ears of common sense, but a forced option in the spiritual sphere. However harsh its form, however painful the activities to which it spurs him, the mystic recognizes in this break-up of his old universe an essential part of the great work, and the act in which he turns to it is an act of loving desire, no less than an act of will. Burning of love into a soul truly taken all vices purgeth, for whilst the true lover with strong and fervent desire into God is born, all things him displease that from the sight of God withdrawn. His eyes once opened, he is eager for that costly ordering of his disordered loves which alone can establish his correspondences with transcendental life. Teach me, my only joy, cries Suso, the way in which I may bear upon my body the marks of thy love. Come, my soul, depart from outward things, and gather thyself together into a true interior silence, that thou mayst set out with all thy courage, and bury and lose thyself in the desert of a deep contrition. It is in this torment of contrition, this acute consciousness of unworthiness, that we have the first swing back of the oscillating self from the initial state of mystic pleasure, to the complementary state of pain. It is, so to speak, on its transcendental side, the reflex action which follows the first touch of God. Thus, we read that Woolman Merswin, swept away by the transports of divine love, did not surrender himself to the passive enjoyment of this first state of absolute being, but was impelled by it to diligent and instant self-criticism. He was seized with the hatred of his body, and inflicted on himself such hard mortifications that he fell ill. 
It is useless for lovers of healthy-mindedness to resent this and similar examples of self-examination and penance, to label the morbid of medieval. The fact remains that only such bitter knowledge of wrongness of relation, seen by the light of ardent love, can spur the will of man to the hard task of readjustment. I saw full surely, says Julian of Norwich, that it behoveth needs to be that we should be in longing and in penance until the time that we be led so deep into God that we verily and truly know our own soul. Dante's whole journey up the Mount of Pagation is the dramatic presentation of this one truth. So too the celebrated description of purgatory attributed to St. Catherine of Genoa is obviously founded upon its author's inward experience of this purgative way. In it, she applies to the souls of the dead her personal consciousness of the necessity of purification, its place in the organic process of spiritual growth. It is, as she acknowledges at the beginning, the projection of her own psychological adventures upon the background of the spiritual world, its substance being simply the repetition after death of that eager and heroic acceptance of suffering, those drastic acts of purification which she has herself been compelled to undertake under the whip of the same psychic necessity, that of removing the rust of illusion, cleansing the mirror in order that it may receive the divine light. It is, she says, as with a covered object, the object cannot respond to the rays of the sun, not because the sun ceases to shine, for it shines without intermission, but because the covering intervenes. Let the covering be destroyed, and again the object will be exposed to the sun, and will answer to the rays which beat against it, in proportion as the work of destruction advances. Thus the souls are covered by a rust, that is, by sin, which is gradually consumed away by the fire of purgatory. The more it is consumed, the more they respond to God, their true Son. Their happiness increases as the rust falls off, and lays them open to the divine ray. The instinctive tendency to seek happiness in God develops itself, and goes on increasing through the fire of love, which draws it to its end with such impetuosity and vehemence that any obstacle seems intolerable, and the more clear its vision, the more extreme its pain. Mostratene la via di gire al monte, cry the souls of the nearly dead in Dante's vision, pushed by that instinctive tendency towards the purifying flames. Such a tendency, such a passionate desire, the aspiring self must have. No cool, well-balanced knowledge of the need of new adjustments will avail to set it on the purgative way. This is a heroic act, and demands heroic passions in the soul. In order to overcome our desires, says St. John of the Cross, who is the classic authority upon this portion of the mystic quest, and to renounce all those things, our love and inclination for which are wont so to inflame the will that it delights therein. We require a more ardent fire and a nobler love, that of the bridegroom. Finding her delight and strength in him, the soul gains the vigour and confidence which enable her easily to abandon all other affections. It was necessary in her struggle with the attractive force of her sensual desires not only to have this love for the bridegroom, but also to be filled with a burning fervour, full of anguish, 
if our spiritual nature were not on fire with other and nobler passions, we should never cast off the yoke of the senses, nor be able to enter on their night. Neither should we have the courage to remain in the darkness of all things, and in denial of every desire. We must be filled with a burning fervour full of anguish. Only this deep and ardent passion for a perceived object of love can persuade the mystic to those unnatural acts of abnegation by which he kills his lesser love of the world of sense, frees himself the remora of desire, unifies all his energies about the new and higher centre of his life. His business, I have said, is transcendence, a mounting up, an attainment of a higher order of reality. Once his eyes have been opened on eternity, his instinct for the absolute roused from its sleep, he sees union with that reality as his duty no less than his joy, sees too that this union can only be consummated on a plane where illusion and selfhood have no place. The inward voice says to him perpetually, at the least seasonable moments, Dimite omnia transitoria, Quaere eterna. Hence the purgation of the senses, and of the character which they have helped to build, is always placed first in order in the mystic way. Though sporadic flashes of illumination and ecstasy may and often do precede and accompany it. Since spiritual, no less than physical existence as we know it, is an endless becoming, it too has no end. In a sense, the whole of the mystical experience in this life consists in a series of purifications, whereby the finite slowly approaches the nature of its infinite source, climbing up the cleansing mountain pool by pool, like the industrious fish in Wilman Merswin's vision, until it reaches its origin. The greatest of the contemplative saints, far from leaving purgation behind them in their progress, were increasingly aware of their own inadequateness, the nearer they approached to the unitive state. For the true lover of the absolute, like every other lover, is alternately abased and exalted by his unworthiness and his good fortune. There are moments of high rapture when he knows only that the banner over him is love. But there are others in which he remains bitterly conscious that in spite of his utmost surrender, there is within him an ineradicable residuum of selfhood which stains the white radiance of eternity. In this sense, then, purification is a perpetual process. That which mystical writers mean, however, when they speak of the way of purgation, is rather the slow and painful completion of conversion. It is the drastic turning of the self from the unreal to the real life, a setting of her house in order, an orientation of the mind to truth. Its business is the getting rid, first of self-love, and secondly of all those foolish interests in which the surface consciousness is steeped. The essence of purgation, says Richard of St. Victor, is self-simplification. Nothing can happen until this has proceeded a certain distance, till the involved interests and tangled motives of the self are simplified, and the false complications of temporal life are recognised and cast away. No one, says another authority in this matter, can be enlightened unless he be first cleansed or purified and stripped. Purgation, which is the remaking of character in conformity with perceived reality, 
consists in these two essential acts, the cleansing of that which is to remain, the stripping of that which is to be done away. It may best be studied, therefore, in two parts, and I think that it will be in the reader's interest if we reverse the order which the theologian Germanica adopts, and first consider negative purification, or self-stripping, and next positive purification, or character adjustment. These, then, are the branches into which this subject will here be split. 1. The negative aspect, the stripping or purging away of those superfluous, unreal, and harmful things which dissipate the precious energies of the self. This is the business of poverty or detachment. 2. The positive aspect, erasing to their highest term, their purest state of all that remains, the permanent elements of character. This is brought about by mortification, the gymnastic of the soul, a deliberate recourse to painful experiences and difficult tasks. 1. Detachment Apart from the plain necessity of casting out imperfection and sin, what is the type of good character which will best serve the self in its journey towards union with the Absolute? The mystics of all ages and all faiths agree in their answer. Those three virtues which the instinct of the Catholic Church fixed upon as the necessities of the cloistered life, the great evangelical council of voluntary poverty with its departments, chastity, the poverty of the senses, and obedience, the poverty of the will, are also, when raised to their highest term and transmuted by the fire of love, the essential virtues of the mystical quest. By poverty the mystic means an utter self-stripping, the casting off of immaterial as well as material wealth, a complete detachment from all finite things. By chastity, he means an extreme and limpid purity of soul, cleansed from personal desire and virgin to all but God. By obedience, that abnegation of selfhood, that mortification of the will, which results in a complete self-abandonment, a holy indifference to the accidents of life. These three aspects of perfection are really one, linked together as irrevocably as the three aspects of the self. Their common characteristic is this. They tend to make the subject regard itself not as an isolated and interesting individual, possessing desires and rights, but as a scrap of the cosmos, an ordinary bit of the universal life, only important as a part of the all, an expression of the will divine. Detachment and purity go hand in hand, for purity is but detachment of the heart. And where these are present, they bring with them that humble spirit of obedience, which expresses detachment of will. We may therefore treat them as three manifestations of one thing, which thing is inward poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the motto of all pilgrims on this road. God is pure good in himself, says Eckhart, therefore will he dwell nowhere but in a pure soul. There he can pour himself out, into that he can wholly flow. What is purity? It is that a man should have turned himself away from all creatures, and have set his heart so entirely on the pure good, that no creature is to him a comfort, that he has no desire for aught creaturely, save so far as he may apprehend therein the pure good which is God. And as little as the bright eye can endure aught foreign in it, 
so little can the pure soul bear anything in it, any stain on it, that comes between it and God. To it all creatures are pure to enjoy, for it enjoyeth all creatures in God, and God in all creatures. To it all creatures are pure to enjoy. This is hardly the popular concept of the mystic, which credits him in the teeth of such examples as St. Francis, St. Mechthild of Magdeburg, Rolle, Suso, and countless others, with a hearty dread of natural things. Too many examples of an exaggerated asceticism, such as the unfortunate story told of the holy curé d'Art, who refused to smell a rose for fear of sin, have supported in this respect the vulgar belief. For it is generally forgotten that though most mystics have practised asceticism as a means to an end, all ascetics are not mystics. Whatever may be the case with other deniers of the senses, it is true that the soul of the great mystic, dwelling on high levels of reality, his eyes set on the transcendental world, is capable of combining with the perfection of detachment that intense and innocent joy in natural things, as veils and vessels of the divine, which results from seeing all creatures in God, and God in all creatures. Whoso knows and loves the nobleness of my freedom, said the voice of God to Mechthild of Magdeburg, cannot bear to love me alone. He must love also me and the creatures. That all-embracing love is characteristic of the illumination which results from a faithful endurance of the purgative way. For the corollary of blessed are the pure in heart is not merely a poetic statement. The annals of mysticism prove it to be a psychological law. How, then, is this contradiction to be resolved? That the mystic who has declared the fundamental necessity of leaving all creatures, yet finds them pure to enjoy? The answer to the riddle lies in the ancient paradox of poverty, that we only enjoy true liberty in respect of such things as we neither possess nor desire, that thou mayest have pleasure in everything, seek pleasure in nothing, that thou mayest know everything, seek to know nothing, that thou mayest possess all things, seek to possess nothing. In detachment the spirit finds quiet and repose for coveting nothing, nothing wearies it by elation, and nothing oppresses it by dejection, because it stands in the centre of its own humility. For as soon as it covets anything, it is immediately fatigued thereby. It is not love but lust, the possessive case, the very food of selfhood, which poisons the relation between the self and the external world and immediately fatigues the soul. Divide the world into mine and not mine, and unreal standards are set up. Claims and cravings begin to fret the mind. We are the slaves of our own property. We drag with us not a treasure but a chain. Behold, says the theologia Germanica, on this sort we must cast all things from us and strip ourselves of them. We must refrain from claiming anything for our own. When we do this, we shall have the best, fullest, clearest and noblest knowledge that a man can have, and also the noblest and purest love and desire. Some there are, says Plotinus, that for all their effort have not attained the vision. They have received the authentic light. All their soul has gleamed as they have drawn near, but they come with a load on their shoulders which holds them back from the place of vision. 
They have not ascended in the pure integrity of their being, but are burdened with that which keeps them apart. They are not yet made one within. Accept poverty, however, demolish ownership, the verb to have in every mood and tense, and this downward drag is at an end. At once the cosmos belongs to you and you to it. You escape the heresy of separateness, are made one, and merged in the greater life of the all. Then a free spirit in a free world, the self moves upon its true orbit, undistracted by the largely self-imposed needs and demands of ordinary earthly existence. This was the truth which St. Francis of Assisi grasped, and applied with the energy of reformer and the delicate originality of a poet to every circumstance of the inner and the outer life. This noble liberty it is which is extolled by his spiritual descendant, Jacopone Datori, in one of his most magnificent odes. Poverte alto sapera, a nulla cosa sociacera, en despreso possedera tutte le cose create. Dio non alberga in corre stretto, tante grande quantai affetto, parvotate a si gran petto, che ci alberga de adate, povertate e nulla avere, e nulla cosa poi volere, ed omne cosa possedere, en spirito de libertate. O poverty, high wisdom, to be subject to nothing, and by despising all to possess all created things. God will not lodge in a narrow heart, and it is as great as thy love. Poverty has so ample a bosom that deity itself may lodge therein. Poverty is naught to have and nothing to desire, but all things to possess in the spirit of liberty. My little sisters, the birds, said St. Francis, greatest adept of that high wisdom, Brother, son, sister, water, mother, earth. Not my servants, but my kindred and fellow citizens, who may safely be loved so long as they are not desired. So, in almost identical terms, the dying Hindu ascetic. O mother earth, father sky, brother wind, friend light, sweetheart water, here take my last salutation with folded hands, for today I am melting away into the supreme, because my heart became pure and all delusion vanished, through the power of your good company. It is the business of Lady Poverty to confer on her lovers this freedom of the universe, to eradicate delusion, cut out the spreading growth of claimfulness, purify the heart, and initiate them into the great life of the all. Well might St. Francis desire marriage with that enchantress, who gives back tenfold all that she takes away. Holy poverty, he said, is a treasure so high-excelling and so divine that we be not worthy to lay it up in our vile vessels, since this is that celestial virtue whereby all earthly things and fleeting are trodden underfoot, and whereby all hindrances are lifted from the soul, so that freely she may join herself to God eternal. Poverty, then, prepares man's spirit for that union with God to which it aspires. She strips off the clothing which he so often mistakes for himself, transvaluates all his values, and shows him things as they are. There are, says Eckhart, four ascending degrees of such spiritual poverty. One, the soul's contempt of all things that are not God. Two, contempt of herself and her own works. Three, utter self-abandonment. Four, self-loss in the incomprehensible being of God. 
So, in the Sacrum Compertium, when the friars climbing the steeps of the hill found Lady Poverty at the summit, enthroned only in her nakedness, she, preventing them with the blessings of sweetness, said, Why hasten ye so from the veil of tears to the mount of light? If peradventure it is me that ye seek, lo, I am but as you behold, a little poor one, stricken with storms and far from any consolation. Whereto the brothers answer, Only admit us to thy peace, and we shall be saved. The same truth, the saving peace of utter detachment from everything but divine reality, a detachment which makes those who have it the citizens of the world, and enabled the friars to say to Lady Poverty, as they showed her from the hill of Assisi the whole countryside at her feet, Hoc es claustrum nostrum domina, is taught by Meister Eckhart in a more homely parable. There was a learned man who, eight years long, desired that God would show him a man who would teach him the truth. And once when he felt a very great longing, a voice from God came to him and said, Go to the church, and there shalt thou find a man who shalt show thee the way to blessedness. And he went thence, and found a poor man whose feet were torn and covered with dust and dirt, and all his clothes were hardly worth three farthings. And he greeted him, saying, God give you good day. He answered, I have never had a bad day. God give you good luck. I have never had ill luck. May you be happy, but why do you answer me thus? I have never been unhappy. Pray explain this to me, for I cannot understand it. The poor man answered, Willingly, you wished me good day. I never had a bad day, for if I am hungry I praise God. If it freezes, hail, snows, rains, if the weather is fair or foul, still I praise God. Am I wretched and despised? I praise God, and so I have never had an evil day. You wished that God would send me luck, but I never had ill luck, for I know how to live with God, and I know that what He does is best, and what God gives me or ordains for me, be it good or ill, I take it cheerfully from God as the best that can be, and so I have never had ill luck. You wished that God would make me happy. I was never unhappy, for my only desire is to live in God's will, and I have so entirely yielded my will to God's, that what God wills, I will. But if God should will to cast you into hell, said the learned man, what would you do then? Cast me into hell. His goodness forbids, but if he did cast me into hell, I should have two arms to embrace him. One arm is true humility, that I should lay beneath him, and be thereby united to his holy humanity. And with the right arm of love, which is united with his holy divinity, I should so embrace him that he would have to go to hell with me. And I would rather be in hell and have God, than in heaven and not have God. Then the master understood that true abandonment with utter humility is the nearest way to God. The master asked further, Whence are you come? From God. Where did you find God? When I forsook all creatures. Where have you left God? In pure hearts and in men of good will. The master asked, 
"'What sort of man are you?' "'I am a king.' "'Where is your kingdom?' "'My soul is my kingdom, "'for I can so rule my senses inward and outward "'that all the desires and power of my soul are in subjection, "'and this kingdom is greater than a kingdom on earth.' "'What brought you to this perfection?' My silence, my high thoughts, and my union with God, for I could not rest in anything that was less than God. Now I have found God, and in God have eternal rest and peace. Poverty, then, consists in a breaking down of man's inveterate habit of trying to rest in, or take seriously, things which are less than God, i.e. which do not possess the character of reality. Such a habit is the most fertile of all causes of world-weariness, disillusion and unrest, faults, or rather spiritual diseases, which the mystics never exhibit, but which few who are without all mystic feeling can hope to escape. Hence the sharpened perceptions of contemplatives have always seen poverty as a counsel of prudence, a higher form of common sense. It was not with St. Francis, or any other great mystic, a first principle, an end in itself. It was rather a logical deduction from the first principle of their science, the paramount importance to the soul of an undistracted vision of reality. Here East and West are in agreement. Their science, says Al-Ghazali of the Sufis, who practised, like the early Franciscans, a complete renunciation of worldly goods, has for its object the uprooting from the soul of all violent passions, the extirpation from it of vicious desires and evil qualities, so that the heart may become detached from all that is not God, and give itself for its only occupation, meditation upon the divine being. All those who have felt themselves urged towards the attainment of this transcendental vision have found that possessions interrupt the view that claims, desires, attachments become centres of conflicting interests in the mind. They assume a false air of importance, force themselves upon the attention, and complicate life. Hence, in the interest of self-simplification, they must be cleared away, a removal which involves for the real enthusiast little more sacrifice than the weekly visit of the dustman. Having entirely surrendered my own free will, says Al-Ghazali of his personal experience, my heart no longer felt any distress in renouncing fame, wealth, or the society of my children. Others have reconciled self-surrender with a more moderate abandonment of outward things. For possessions take different rank for almost every human soul. The true rule of poverty consists in giving up those things which enchain the spirit, divide its interests, and deflect it on its road to God. Whether these things be riches, habits, religious observances, friends, interests, distastes, or desires, not in mere outward destitution for its own sake. It is attitude, not act, that matters. Self-denudation would be unnecessary were it not for our inveterate tendency to attribute false value to things the moment they become our own. What is poverty of spirit but meekness of mind, by which a man knows his own infirmity? says Raleigh, seeing that to perfect stableness he may not come but by the grace of God, all thing that him might let from that grace he forsakes, and only in joy of his maker he sets his desire, 
and as of one root spring many branches, so of wilful poverty on this wise taken proceed virtues and marvels untrode. Not as some that change their clothes and not their souls, riches soothly it seems these forsake, and vices innumerable they cease not to gather. If thou truly all thing for God forsake, see more what thou despised than what thou forsaketh. The poverty of the mystics, then, is a mental rather than a material state. Detachment of the will from all desire of possessions is the inner reality, of which Franciscan poverty is a sacrament to the world. It is the poor in spirit, not the poor in substance, who are to be spiritually blessed. Let all things be forsaken of me, says Gerlach Peterson, so that being poor I may be able in great inward spaciousness, and without any hurt, to suffer want of all those things which the mind of man can desire, out of or excepting God himself. The soul, says St. John of the Cross, is not empty, so long as the desire for sensible things remains. But the absence of this desire for things produces emptiness and liberty of soul, even when there is an abundance of possessions. Every person in whom the mystical instinct awakes soon discovers in himself certain tastes or qualities which interrupt the development of that instinct. Often these tastes and qualities are legitimate enough upon their own plane, but they are drain upon the energy of the self, preventing her from attaining that intenser life for which she was made and which demands her undivided zest. They distract her attention, fill the field of perception, stimulate her instinctive life, making of the surface consciousness so active a thing that it can hardly be put to sleep. Where can he have that pure and naked vision of unchangeable truth, whereby he see into all things, says Peterson again, who is so busied in other things, not perhaps evil, which operate upon his thoughts and imagination, and confuse and enchain his mind, that his sight of that unique one in whom all things are is overclouded. The nature of these distracting factors which confuse and enchain the mind will vary with almost every individual. It is impossible to predict what those things will be which a self must give up, in order that the transcendental consciousness may grow. It makes little difference whether a bird be held by a slender thread or by a rope. The bird is bound and cannot fly until the cord that holds it is broken. It is true that a slender thread is more easily broken Still, notwithstanding, if it is not broken, the bird cannot fly. This is the state of a soul with particular attachments. It never can attain to the liberty of the divine union, whatever virtues it may possess. Desires and attachments affect the soul, as the remora is said to affect a ship. That is but a little fish, yet when it clings to the vessel, it effectually hinders its progress. Thus each adventurer must discover and extirpate all those interests which nourish selfhood, however innocent or even useful these interests may seem in the eyes of the world. The only rule is the ruthless abandonment of everything which is in the way. When any man God perfectly desires to love, all things as well as inward as outward, that to God's love are contrary, and from his love do let, he studies to do away. This may mean the prompt and utter self-stripping of St. Francis of Assisi, who cast off his actual clothing in his relentless determination to have nothing of his own. 
the reluctant bit-by-bit renunciations which at last set his follower Angela Foligno free, or the drastic proceedings of Antoinette Borignan, who found that a penny was enough to keep her from God. Being one night in a most profound penitence, says the biographer of this extraordinary woman, she said from the bottom of her heart, O my Lord, what must I do to please thee? For I have nobody to teach me. Speak to my soul, and it will hear thee. At that instant she heard, as if another had spoken within her, Forsake all earthly things. Separate thyself from the love of the creatures. Deny thyself. From this time the more she entered into herself, the more she was inclined to abandon all. But she had not the courage necessary for the complete renunciation towards which her transcendental consciousness was pressing her. She struggled to adjust herself to the inner and the outer life, but without success. For such a character as hers, compromise was impossible. She asked always earnestly, When shall I be perfectly thine, O my God? And she thought he still answered her, When thou shalt no longer possess anything, and shalt die to thyself. And where shall I do that, Lord? He answered, In the desert. At last the discord between her deeper and her superficial self became intolerable. Reinforced by the miseries of an unsympathetic home, still more by a threat of approaching marriage, the impulse to renunciation got its way. She disguised herself in a hermit's dress. She was only eighteen and had no one to help or advise her and went out of her chamber about four in the morning, taking nothing but one penny to buy bread for that day, and it being said to her in the going out, Where is thy faith? In a penny? She threw it away. Thus she went away, wholly delivered from the heavy burden of the cares and good things of this world. End of First Half, Part 2, Chapter 3